Welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind from HowStuffWorks.com. Hey, welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind. My name is Robert Lamb. And I'm Julie Douglas. And we are reaching to you one way or another through the internet. We are crawling out to you through the quote-unquote interwebs, through the tubes. Uh, Slithering our way toward your ears. Yeah, sometimes traveling through the air. Uh, and then yeah. into a device, and then through cords, through the air again, and then into your skull, which is, uh, I mean, that's the the way the internet gets its hooks, gets its hooks into you. You know, it gets it roots down into you like like some sort of organism, and it's an organism that just continues to grow and to grow and to consume and to consume. Mm-hmm. And where does it all end? Well, eventually, it it, uh, it goes into space, right? Yeah. I mean, which is what we're going to talk about today. We're going to talk about this idea of of a space that is. A, a networked space that um, we live in. Yeah, I mean it's it's really crazy when you when you think of the internet in terms of like human culture is sort of half biological and structural, and then half information, half internet. Like we are, where does humanity end and internet begin at, at this point? You know. Well, and you've said before, um, um, and I agree. Like we already are cyborgs to yeah. some extent. Uh, so this is just sort of a natural, uh, you know, outburst of what we have here on planet Earth that we will take into space for many good reasons, I think. Um, but before we talk about that, I did want to talk about how this this is something that will happen um, based on what we've seen here on Earth. And we've, I'm sure, all heard of something called Moore's Law, this idea that um, computing power doubles every two years. And we've seen this with, you know, technology at least since the 70s, mm-hmm. um, on a very grand scale. So now that there's this idea of something called the Internet of Things, and this is a, an idea of a lot of two-way interaction uh, between uh, people uh, using open source software systems to uh, share ideas, create ideas out of basically thin air. Um, Fab Labs is something that MIT professor Neil Gershenfield created. It's essentially computer labs all over the world that use open software so that just about anybody who's interested can dream up a thing in a computer model and then make it. Um, so it's about this idea about how we're, we've um, gone beyond not just being networked and sharing information, but now creating things out of it is very interesting. And that's why they call it the Internet of Things. Um, you know, look back to Sixth Sense uh, wearable technology. We talked about this before. All surfaces, all things become networked. You can project um, these networks or the, this Internet capabilities basically onto anything. Right, and everything is is taking in new data, collecting data, and passing it on. Yeah, and potentially giving us data as well. Your refrigerator is telling you that your eggs are expired. The chair that you're sitting in is telling you that, um, you know, your your vital signs are the following, or your moods are the following, based on this. Um, everything becomes alive and networked, and so it's very interesting to think that. Um, you know, you can create something just out of your head and say, okay, well, let's, let's, you know, rig up this 3D printing and I'm going to create a piece of jewelry that I've just designed or an organ. Right. Right? So, okay, what do you do once you have networked the earth and every imaginable surface becomes alive with data? What do you do? I mean, you do you whatever. You look toward you, the stars. Well, I was going to say you do whatever you want, right? I mean, it's yeah. like the ultimate freedom. You're not, 
ultimate creative freedom in a way, uh, though you could see where it could sort of lead to creative stagnation as well. I don't know. Well, I mean, there's this idea that we are, um, in a weird way, if you take a space analogy, there's, uh, you know, microgravity, or, you know, nearly the void here where there's no gravity. The same thing is happening on a technological scale, that we're not moored by our computer equipment anymore. Now it's all sort of becoming um, this free-floating thing, this cloud computing, um, this wearable technology that doesn't tether us to something so it would make sense that we would look to the skies and say, okay, if we are going to um, continue manned and robotic missions, which we are, then we need to figure out a way to connect ourselves planet to planet um, and, uh, you know, wherever else we go out there in the wild. Yeah, so we end up uh, pursuing this idea of an interplanetary Internet. And this has been on, this has been on the table for years. Um, and uh, we've had several projects come along um, uh, and... Uh, you know, with with varying degrees of success or cancellation. I mean, you've had the uh, the, the canceled Mars telecommunications orbiter. There mm-hmm. was deep impact networking, uh, DTN on the ISS. As- astronauts are using Facebook already, and um, I mean, it all comes down to all right. We're going to send probes out. We want these. We need these probes to communicate with us. They are part of our technology. They are part of our technological information culture. Mm-hmm. They are they are parts of humanity, and so they need to be connected to us by this. Uh, greasy tentacle of data <laughs> and uh and uh, for that in place we need an internet connection out there we need to be able to to set up uh, the 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 servers that make this possible well and particularly if we it extrapolate needs to be this wireless because otherwise it's yeah, going to be gonna be wireless it's going to be a pain yeah that's going to be um just a mess isn't it um and yeah, let's extrapolate this out ten thousand years from now. And we, you know, we just talked about this idea of us colonizing space. Mm-hmm. So, what sort of you know l- virtual life can you create out in space, and what will it look like, um, you know, on each planet or, you know, in, in each area that we decide to focus on? And will it be worth living if you don't have a, a, a good internet connection out there? Right. That's what it. Well, yeah, I mean, that part of the reason why um, on the International Space Station they have um, Internet capability is this idea that you can tap back into life on Earth. Yeah. Um, again, it's a huge psychological factor to be able to feel connected. What's interesting, though, is you, you – and, and again, it, uh, you also get into ideas of if we can't physically go to places, then we can digitally go to them. Right. We can, we can control and communicate with distant probes. We can conceivably use virtual reality or um, or, uh, or even uh, digitized uh, consciousness, if you really want to look long-term, mm-hmm. to actually travel there in the form of a machine or a, or a mechanical avatar. Uh, all these things are kind of on the table long-term. But, but you need that Internet in place to do it. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it's not just as simple as, oh, now we have wireless and it spans tremendous distances. You end up with, with a number of problems you have to deal with. First of all, satellite maintenance. If you have various satellites and servers out there floating around, um, you know they might not uh, have to deal with a ton of uh, of maintenance. Mm-hmm. Uh, but you're going to still have to, you're you're still expanding. You're going to have to maintain this network. There's also the possibility of hackers and break-ins. I mean, hackers hackers going to hack, right? I mean, that's just how it goes. It doesn't uh, necessarily need to make sense because you might say yeah. oh why would a hacker mess with our ability to uh, communicate with space probes they'll do it because that's what they do well, because some of them are 15 yeah you know um, and then there'll be varying levels of people making political statements etc right. but we've we've seen enough of our history that 
that they are just a part of it. They are the germs, uh, or that well, depends on the, the point of view. You could also see them as a, at times as a, uh, a defensive uh, a part of uh, an immune system as well. But they are undeniably a part of our uh, information technological uh, culture. Well, and right now, I mean, security is a huge issue, and a lot of people have bandied about the idea of quantum um, cryptology, but um, or cryptography, but. Even that is not secure. That is breakable. So, yeah. you know, is it possible to even have a super secure system? I mean, it, really, anything is hackable. At yeah, some point. Well, you can't use the honor system at all. No. Even with even with space travel. Uh, and then the other big thing is the um, is that when we when we're dealing with long distances like this, we're dealing with cosmic distances, be it from say Earth to uh, Uranus or Earth to some distance system, mm-hmm. you're dealing with speed of light delays. Okay, So on Earth, we have two commu- computers connected to the Internet. Maybe they're a few thousand miles away at most. And uh, the information can travel it's at really remarkable speeds. It's, it's almost instantaneous. I to have a bit of data. I send it to you and wham, it's there, right? Right. Uh, but how fast can we actually send data, right? Uh, light travels at 186,000 miles per second. So it only takes a you know a few fractions of a second to send a packet of data from one computer to another. In contrast, distances between a station on Earth and one on Mars can be between 38 million miles right. and 248 million miles. So these distances, you can take several minutes or hours for a radio signal to reach a receiving station. Yeah, and can I like, let me jump in and just talk about this packet of data that that gets transmitted? Yeah. Um, because at the World Science Festival um, on a panel about the the past history of internet and the future, they talked about what it takes to transmit this packet, and I find it fascinating if you break it down and then you start to think about it uh, in the void. So, okay, let's say a person in England clicks on a World Science Festival link. This is what happens, and I'll just run you through it because it's okay. like, fascinating to me, at least. Uh, first, a server asks for a copy of the page that you want to look at, basically. And then this request is wrapped in data, including the World Science Festival's IP address. The packet leaves the home computer, travels underground via a copper wire network, routes itself through a regional network, then ends up at an Internet hub at Telehouse North in London. Okay, so this hub then looks at it and says, okay, this packet's, um, well, the World Science Festival server is in LA, so we're going to have to get this over there. So Telehouse North then sends the packet out as light through fiber optic cables in the ocean, where the packet is then routed to a hub in New York. The hub sends the packet through a series of regional networks there until it reaches the server in LA. Okay, this is crazy, right? Because this is a lot of things. You know, it's not even done yet. It's halfway there. Mm-hmm. But there's a ton of things happening here. Uh, the server then receives and reads the request and gets ready to send the information to England. But web pages are, like, they're way too large to be sent as a single packet of data. So the data spread out into tiny packets of data, each one wrapped in the information it needs to then rebuild itself back in England. And then these packets are then checked and sent by the hub in L.A. back to New York and back through the fiber optic cables to England and back through that regional network and then back to the, you know, the, the copper wire, back to that home in England where they all form into one cohesive web page. And this whole journey takes one second. Wow. Okay, so that's that's a, one of those things that we just completely take for granted that um, that our networks are are so well tied together and their data is being uh, parsed out in such a way that to, you know, 
give us the data that we want, you know, one second later. So when we're talking about sending information out to, uh, say, a Mars colony or a, or a or a space probe that's uh, that's that's sailing away from our system, mm-hmm. uh, we're talking about taking information, breaking up into pieces, and then sending a swarm of those pieces uh, at the destination. Right. So, I mean, there's there's different um, protocols here, and that's what they're trying to figure out. Vinton Cerf, who uh, is called the the um, father of the internet. Um, also works for Google now. Yeah, he's like uh, their head um, evangelist or something. Yeah, chief evangelist officer or something like that. Um, he's actually creating those protocols and standardizing them so that everybody can use them, mm-hmm. um, every nation that wants to. Yeah. And it's, it's again, it's, it's a little bit different because it's going to be networked different. The highway is going to be, uh, you know, it's, it's not as like we can just run fiber optic cables up. You know, to Mars, right? And we have to we have to factor in data loss. We have to factor yeah. in that you're not going to have a consistent stream of information between these two places. Even though there are some really interesting um, uh, plans for you know potentially using lasers to pitch this information out there. Mm-hmm. But uh, but ultimately, what well, one of the things that really fascinates me is the idea that uh, uh, assuming that we we do not find a loophole in um, in in the, the the speed limit of light. Uh, in terms of transferring information, uh, assuming that we're long term, uh, we're, we're beholden to that law that uh, that no information, no spaceship, nothing can travel faster than a beam of light mm-hmm. across uh, the galaxy. Uh, we end up with a situation where you could say, let's say you you have Earth, all right, and you have Earth's internet and it's uh, localized internet, and then let's say you have a distant uh, colony. At what distance do you end up having this mitosis of, of Internet and this mitosis of culture mm-hmm. to where uh, as interconnected as we feel with our Internet, um, you would end up in a situation where uh, due to this time delay of sending information, mm-hmm. you, would, uh, you would have these two colonies uh, in touch with each other and they would have regular updates about their news, but you would have uh, uh, growing uh, and, and ever-distancing Internet cultures. So... New memes that are uh, yeah. that are particular only to this world, uh, up to the date informa- up to date information that's uh, specific only to this world, uh, and they sort of grow into different informational cultural environments. I mean, what you're talking about here is the evolution of language, yeah. um, and I, I read this um, in some of the material that we prepared uh, when we were talking about living in space. That eventually. Um, that even speech patterns would be altered because sound travels a little bit differently. Hmm. And so, um, you know, essentially you can still communicate with one another, but over 100,000 years, you know, speech patterns may change very differently for people who are living off Earth permanently. Um, so it's really interesting that you bring up the memes and the metaphors that someone on Earth may not be able to get if, uh, you know, someone's living on Mars because you have a completely different environment. You know, the sun um, is beating down on you in a completely different way. And to try to communicate that to someone else outside of that experience, that's what causes, you know, different cultures in different languages, right? Yeah. I mean, it, to, to go back to, you know, in the past we've discussed, say, art, artificial gravity, magical artificial gravity, mm-hmm. and how that's something that sort of shows up in science fiction, mm-hmm. and we just, you know, we don't think about it all that much. Spaceship, it has gravity like Earth because it's cheaper to film that way and we don't have to think that hard about it. Likewise, you see, you know, classic Star Trek, right? Two individuals are talking to each other. It's just, you know, one's on one screen, the other's on the other. And we often, 
we often don't really factor in these vast distances that we're communicating across because we're probably already skimming over how we're traveling those distances or using um, potentially problematic science to explain intergalactic travel. So intergalactic communication that just, you know, penciled in in the margins. Uh, but, uh, but, but to, yeah, to imagine a, a future where these different worlds have, have different Internet, that, that, that communicating between uh, one colony and another would uh, it would harken back to the days of sending a telegram or, a, or snail mail uh, where you would have to wait for this packet of data to travel at even at just ph- uh, phenomenal speeds mm-hmm. to travel to be received and then to travel back to you um, it's it's fascinating because um, I mean the, the more we see the internet and the speed of information unite us here on earth mm-hmm. and uh, and in our more optimistic moments we imagine it ultimately bringing us all together. Um, the idea that that just isn't possible given the vast distances and the, uh, and the, the speed limit uh, of light uh, when it comes to uh, envisioning our future out in the stars. Well, and there's also this question of who, who is, uh, when I say who, I mean uh, more like national identity, who mm-hmm. is going to be creating this network and dominating it, right? Yeah. Because... Well, not presumably, but most likely there's probably going to be one player in here that's going to have more of an influence on what gets designed and how it influences um, our communication. Yeah. So it's it's an interesting. But it um, seems like a, like a schism is is unavoidable. You end up with uh, like uh, Catholic Google and then Eastern Orthodox Google, right? Well, I don't know because here's the thing: like you know, again, if you're living on Mars, do you have and you've talked about this before too extensively. What does religion mean in space yeah. at that point with that perspective? So I, this, there could be very huge uh, cultural divides. Um, and that's not necessarily what we were intending to talk about today, like this offer of, you know, cult- cultural divide brought on by the internet. But we've already um, been able to look at the internet in retrospect and see how it influences culture. Um, so it's interesting to extrapolate that out into space. Yeah, totally. I mean, yeah, that's that's the part of this that really blows my mind. I mean, because the the idea of all right, well, you know, how do we have com- have space probes communicate with each other? How would a, a, an off-world colony communicate with us? I mean, that's really fascinating. I, I love that. But when you start thinking about the cultural ramifications and the mm-hmm. personal ramifications, um, I mean, that's that's where I really connect with the issue. So. All right, hey, we're going to take a quick break, and when we come back, we're going to wrap things up, and we're going to run through some uh, listener mail. All right, we have returned. Um, so, yeah, there's a, just a, a little bit of, uh, of insight into where we're going with the Internet um, immediately and then long-term as we try to imagine what uh, life beyond our world might consist of, um, especially when you, when you think of the human race as not merely this uh, organic thing or even this, uh, this world of things, but this Internet of things. This Internet of existence, really, yeah. yeah. All right. Well, let's uh, let's take a look at a couple data packets that came in. Oh yes, yes. Uh, bring us some of these, Robert. The uh, listener mail. All right. Uh, first of all, um, I, th- I think it was the the fiction podcast where we were talking about um, the way fiction alters our perception of reality mm-hmm. and ultimately the manifestation of reality around us, uh, especially in terms of culture. Not so much the laws of physics, but but certainly the way that we behave as as a, as a people. Um, I think that was the one where I brought up um, that I did not really understand what she's a brick house, she's mighty, mighty. Right, yeah. Out, what that means, because 
it because anytime I hear she's a brick house, I imagine a woman made out of bricks, and I don't see how that's particularly attractive because it's a woman made out of bricks. We were talking about yeah. ta- the tactile parts of our brains that respond to metaphors, yes. if I remember correctly. Yeah. And uh, so Jim writes in, and uh, and he explained it. He says she's a brick house because she's stacked as like bricks are stacked. Shack it down, shack it down now. Jim in New Jersey. So I guess that makes sense. She's So the, the whole thing is that bricks are stacked. She is stacked. Stacked in the sense that she's put together... And busty, right? Is that, that what I'm getting here? Yeah, a busty, I would say, is, is what uh, stacked is, means, yeah. Okay, all right. Well, that, I'm still picturing a woman made out of bricks, but <laughs> I have a little more background on that now. Thank you for the uh, the funky insight there, Jim. Um, we received uh, some more listener mail uh, regarding the episode The Horror, where we talked about uh, how our brains work when we're watching scary movies, why we're addicted to it, and, uh, and uh, that, you know, really... Uh, connected with a number of people. Uh, we l- heard from a listener by the name of Sean. Uh, Sean uh, Mikolif. Uh, I can use his last name since he's uh, uh, writing online here. Uh, and he uh, writes in to say, I recently listened to your show about horror, and being a staff writer for horroraddicts.net, wanted to send my thoughts. I primarily do reviews of horror films, and with over 60 films I've reviewed, I've covered decades and of and genres of film. I've come to believe, and this is my personal opinion, that the type of of horror a fan wraps their mind around depends a lot on their age. Those who are younger, under 25, seem to go for the quick slasher types of movies, these being things like Saw, Final Destination, and just gore-filled films in general. This is because they are used to more instant gratification, and their attention spans are a bit short. As we get older, our tastes may change as we look for people to scare our, uh, our minds, and thus want horror that hits the mind more than the sight. A great example of the current horror trend is how uh, Josh Whedon's uh, The Cabin in the Woods uh, shows us how um, horror films are very formulaic, and all you need uh, to do is get a group of kids around a monster and kill all but one, and you've got yourself a horror film people will want to see. Uh, and he goes on from there to discuss, uh, I think, some more spoilery stuff, so mm-hmm. I'll, I'll leave it at, at that. But um, Sean writes uh, under the name Nightmist at uh, Horror Addicts, and um, he recently did a top ten where he just mentioned his top ten favorites. Yeah, that was interesting to look at. Yeah, so uh, just real quick, uh, he has an extensive post on this you can look up at horroraddicts.net, but uh, just to run through his ten favorites, Salem's Lot, 79. Yeah, yeah mm-hmm. that's a good one. The Shining, 1980, oh, that's a great one. Yeah, Dog Soldiers, 2002, did you see this one? I haven't seen that one. It's pretty fun. It's the guy who did The Descent, and it's, uh, it's kind of like aliens with uh, werewolves, and it's one of the few werewolves mo- werewolf movies that really works. Um, Fido, which is a zombie flick that I have not seen. Um, the Host, uh, 2006 South Korean horror film. That, that. That's a good one. Mm-hmm. Takes the the monster movie uh, scenario and turns it on its head by having us like almost instantly see the monster, and then it just rampages the whole film. Uh, the Exorcist, another classic. C'est magnifique. Let the Right One In, 2008. This yeah. is the the original, not the the remake. Right. And uh, I agree. The Swedish that, one. Oh. So good. It is. It's a good one. Perfect Creature, 2007. I don't think I've seen this one. Nope. Um, Slither, 2006. Uh, I know it has its fans. It's not not really my thing. And uh, The Strangers, 2009. So uh, so there are just a few films uh, that uh, that one of our listeners uh, recommends in terms of great horror. And uh, finally, we have one other bit of listener mail related to the. Um, the horror episode, and this is from Marta. Marta writes and says, Hi, Julian Robert. 
I'm writing you because I just finished listening to the horror podcast. I've been listening to you guys for about a year now, and I'll admit that this particular podcast is one of my favorites so far. I found myself I found myself grinning and nodding as I listened. I grew up watching horror movies and reading horror novels. I still have my original copies of Stephen King's books, some a bit tattered, but obviously well loved and often reread over the years. While growing up, my family was highly aware of my quote unquote fascination with horror movies. To the point that for my 11th birthday party, my dad rented some horror movies, whose uh, name I can't recall uh, 20 years later. I think she's talking about the movies, not mm-hmm. the dad. Uh, um, as my uh, friends and I watched the movie, we huddled together in awe and fear. Whenever a scary bit would come on, we would scream, and my dad would run down and ask if we wanted him to turn the movie off. We'd either holler um, a rather empathetic no, or we would shush him since we were completely enthralled with what we were watching. All I really remember of the movie now is the movie dealt with mummies, some priests from ancient Egypt who traveled through time and tore people's hearts out. Whoa. I don't... Hmm. That one's not ringing a bell. Uh-uh. Because at first I thought she was going to be talking about like the old Boris Karloff deal. I mean, it kind of sounds like a plot on True Blood, but that doesn't match up. Yeah. I mean, there was a great uh, cheesy um, mummy-related film that was on MST years back that had like a... It's like an ancient astronaut's thing where the mummy was really a space alien and he was collecting jewels, but there was no heart ripping in that. So, I don't know. That's a good, uh, actually, a good call out for listeners. If you know what she's talking about, let us know and we will educate uh, all of us. Um, she continues. As I said, my family was aware that I was and still am a horror fan. As I hit the age where I was old enough to babysit my younger sister, my parents would always tell me not to let my sister watch horror movies while they were out. Of course, the minute they left, she would beg to watch whatever Freddy movie happened to be on table <laughs> or I happened to bring home from the video store. We'd go back and forth for a bit until I finally agreed. And, of course, she'd get scared, would still be awake when our parents came home, and I'd get in trouble. Now that we're adults, my sister refuses to see scary movies a la Freddy Krueger or Jason, and she has discovered that even the really good and scary uh, psychological thrillers are not her cup of tea. But being the awesome sister that she is, she'll go uh, with me once a year and see a scary movie and will spend the entire time peeking over her purse. Anywho, just thought I'd share. <laughs> Please continue doing uh, the awesome job that you guys do. Um, and, uh, yeah, so uh, this is sincerely, Marta. Well, that's awesome. Um and it's interesting, too, just talking about um, exposing her sister to this and her sister ending up being the polar opposite, uh, you know, not not having a, a tolerance or, or a desire to seek out horror films as an adult. Uh, yeah, as, yeah, as a child, she wanted them. And I was just thinking that corroborates two different studies that we've talked about before, the fact that kids cannot get enough candy, right? <laughs> yeah. um, and, you know, having to do with, like, uh, energy stores as a child and the quick fix they get from candy. And then they... They can't get enough uh, scary movies. Yeah, you know, which also corroborates some other studies. So, yeah, it's, yeah, and uh, I can't help but think of uh, of my own uh, family too, because I I would uh, get my sisters to watch these scary movies. My my middle sister Lucy, she was she wasn't really affected by them. She just kind of eh, you know wasn't particularly interested. But I, I feel like uh, my youngest sister Allison, she would get rather frightened by these films. Uh, but as an adult, she she still seems to have some level of uh, of nostalgia and appreciation for horror films. Like uh, she'll she'll dress up. She really gets into Halloween and all. So I don't know. It's, it's interesting though that uh, in um, in Marta's case, the uh, the younger sister ended up uh, just going almost completely to the other side of the fence on the horror movie issue. Yeah, yeah, and yeah. Maybe it's her once a year thing with her sister. And yeah. She's like, I, I get to explore it again at that moment. Yeah. And she savors it. And who knows, maybe she'll bring her back a little, around. Yeah? Yeah. 
Our tastes change. Well, hey, if you have something you would like to share with us, be it related to horror movies, be it related to brick houses, be it related to, uh, oh, the, the future of the Internet and uh, and how, what the Internet might be like on an off-world colony, let us know. You can find us on Facebook where we are Stuff to Blow Your Mind, and you can find us on Twitter where our handle is Blow the Mind. And you can always send us an email to blowthemind at discovery.com. Be sure to check out our new video podcast, Stuff from the Future. Join House of Work staff as we explore the most promising and perplexing possibilities of tomorrow.